Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with David Porter. We're going to do dueling questions, but uh, first, thanks sponsors, especially Panini today, but also Upper Deck, Tops, and Huggins and Scott Auctions, Heritage Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Compsy.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So, David Porter of Panini, welcome to the show, but hit me with your best shot. Well, thanks for having me on, Dr. Beckett. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. My uh, first question for you is, when you guys were traveling back in the 70s, when you'd go town to town and set up buying sprees and put ads, what's your favorite memory from that whole junket of trips? It was the Boston trip where there were 12 guys. So we had huge ads in the Boston papers. This was in 77, maybe. So a long time ago, everybody brought a bunch of cash because checks weren't going to work. We had six locations all over the uh, Boston metropolitan area. There'd never been a big card show there. And we had so much stuff that we got. And it was 1960 and before, or 63 maybe. So there was no new stuff. And we had such volume, we had to take out a meeting room and put all the cards in there at the end of the weekend. And we had to figure out how to divvy them up. And they suggested that I be the guy to divvy it up. So they left the room, went and had dinner. And so I made 12 long and and tall piles of cards. There were all kinds of Gaudis, Tito Sixes, just... (laughs) 19th century cards, just thousands of cards for each guy of all primo stuff. So I divided it up and they couldn't snoop around because they couldn't see what was in there. But I said, these are all equal and I will pick last. So nobody had been in the room to see, but there was, there were 1949 Bowman baseball complete sets. There were wow. not 52 tops complete sets. I don't remember there. I don't remember there being a mantle there, but if there would have been, I would have put the mantle in the stack and then put the Lajuay in the next yeah. one. It was <laughs> unbelievable. So I wound up getting last choice and I did fine because I equitably distributed them. Sure. I've actually told that story, but it's fun. Oh, to <laughs> I had not heard it. Okay. Panini has some amazing products and they're complicated and I'm not blaming you, but when I'm looking in boxes and I see a lot of really cool Panini stuff, especially of Dallas Mavericks or guys that I would collect for my friends who have local interests since we're in Dallas. When they're not serially numbered, these parallels and the, the rainbow effect is because you guys come up with all these different colors. My rule of thumb that I want you to shoot down is that if it's an exotic color, it's more difficult. I'll shoot that down. Sometimes it is. Most of the time, the exotic colors are not. And we put those on unnumbered cards intentionally so they get out more. Sometimes the unnumbered cards are really short. If you get like a, a zebra card that's not numbered, it's got like zebra stripes on it. Those are extremely short. They will always be extremely short. It'll just be a brand tenant of the prison brand, no matter what sport it is. If you pull a zebra card, know that there's not very many of them. Or if you pull a, a downtown insert or a kaboom insert, know that those are always going to be short. So the, the more familiar you become with the Panini products, the easier it'll be to spot the ones that are really short, probably. Most of the time that follows that way. We have seen some instances where it's not been the case. And sometimes we get a couple angry collectors that go, you should have told me that was only out of whatever. How can I know that? Do I have to just study up and look at the uh, the product spec sheets? I think more importantly is don't be so quick to sell your stuff. Hang on to your stuff enough to where you have a time to do a little market research. You can go and see what other people are getting for those same type cards. Just don't think you have to be the first one to sell that insert or sell that card. See, hang on to it long enough where you can do your own research and figure out what it's worth. That's the advice I give people. Fair enough. Okay, your turn. 
where do you, this market's pretty crazy. Where do you see it ending up? Well, it ends up with that there's going to be a correction. There's no way. You can't have things going up 100% a month. I mean, it's, so I prefer a correction to a crash. And a crash means people don't want it at any price. But there's a lot of cards in the hobby that if they drop by half, they still, I don't think, would be good deals compared to a year or two ago. I, I hope people don't freak out when the next glamour card doesn't sell for more than it sold the month before. That's just not real life. But through it all, there's a solid base of collectors who are interested. They'd love to have a 52 tops mantle, but now that's priced out of the range of almost anybody in almost any condition. To me, that's unhealthy, but I'm not in charge. I'm not in favor of market manipulation. And I'm not saying that's what this is, but there's a herd mentality, a bandwagon effect, the fear of missing out that's only on the buying side. And I better buy it now because it's going up. And all it's going to take is a turn to think, I better sell it now because it's going down. But if you chop prices in half, people are still going to want to buy some of these better cards because they're cool and they're rare too. That goes for new and old. It's not that the vintage cards are immune or the new cards are immune just because they're serial numbered. We have an excess of demand oversupply right now. As long as there's more dollars chasing a few cards, the price are going to go up, but they won't go up forever. Okay. That's a really good answer. Second question. Okay. When you guys are doing your products for Panini, do you have a guideline for the cases that you produce, healthy or unhealthy? What's the over and under in terms of how much of that is held back, not by Panini, but held back by dealers or purchasers to open later? I've always said if 10% of the product is not opened in that year and is set aside for future investment, 10% sounds reasonable to me. I'm guessing now that it's more than 10% on some of these products. So you're- I, I, I think it depends on the product and the price point. I think that there's speculation on the higher price points more than on the lower price points that may be at retail. If, if, if I was to, to be able to purchase, let's say uh, this year's Eminence Basketball, the 1920 Eminence Basketball product, which sells for about $30,000 a box right now. There's no way I could justify opening it just because even knowing that what's in there is going to be good, I would not open it. I would take my chances on keeping it sealed and speculating on that for a couple of years, knowing that in just a short time, there won't be any of those left. As On the same way that I think that I also would not be in a big hurry if I was like doing a retail any Opticrome program we do like Mosaic or Prism or Select, you know, I would not be in a big hurry to sell the count lots of my rookies, especially the ones that weren't on fire or that weren't the top two or three. I would be a lot more apt to hang on to those just watching what the history of that brand has done and how people collect, just how the, the natural progression of collectors handle releases like that. We've seen the, the 12-13, the first year we did Prism Basketball in 12-13, those prices are ridiculous. Of course, we built it a lot differently in 1213 than we do now. I think you only had two prisms in a box in 1213. And you got more autographs and fewer prisms, and we've swapped that formula around now. But the prisms out of that box are, I, I saw a, a Kawhi Leonard rookie gold prism out of 10, sold for $89,000 in an auction six months ago. I'm just going, wow, that's crazy. So I think I would be really careful on, on how I took my stuff to market if I was going to sell it. I'd be very picky on what I chose to keep closed and not open up and speculate on. I think that as you collect longer and you become a more seasoned collector, 
those answers get easier and easier and you kind of understand a little better? Well, in fairness, your strategy consistently, most people think about buy, sell, or hold. Mm -hmm. You only think about buy and hold. You're correct. not a seller. Right. No, I haven't been that much either. But, so, but, if, if, but that's if your was, mindset. If, but if I was able to sell and I was going to sell, I still wouldn't sell very much of the OptiChrome stuff at all. I would hang on to almost all of it because the chances are it's going to be a lot more expensive. It's the same way with like my 70s and 80s and my vintage or my 60s and 70s, not so much the 80s, my 60s and 70s stuff. It's going to cost me a lot more to, to replace it if I ever choose to replace it than I'm going to get for it selling it now. Okay, your turn. Question three. Grading. How does grading fit into what you collect? I see a ton of, of graded stuff on the wall back there. That's where it fits. Now, basically, if something gets above a certain price, I think it's wise to grade, BGS being my grader of choice, obviously. But also, if something is an interesting card that I want to put on my wall, all my wall, I have these, these kind of built-in things that fit BGS slabs. Actually, BGS might be changing the size of their slab. Or, and if they do, I am in trouble. <laughs> I, mean, I just realized that in talking to you, I got to get a new wall. <laughs> Replace my wall. If, if they change it to foil the bad guys, I'm going to, anyway, I like the protection and uh, I like the fact that the nomenclature is there, that it's very identifiable what it is. I've enjoyed that. But uh, sure. the other thing I've realized is that when I've been given BGS, these big orders once a year, I'll bring them a bunch of cards. And that's probably not a good way to do it because they're so backlogged. Bigger orders, I think, are problematic. So I probably ought to be giving them cards every month where they could knock them out. Spread them out, yeah. Not the way I work. So, yeah, my wall of fame is to have one guy slabbed where there's a uniform look to it for each player. But then I have other backup stocks. I don't really have an algorithm for if it's above a certain value. It's just I've got some cheap cards that are slabbed and I've got some expensive cards that are slabbed. Okay, my turn. Hey. What's the best decade for collecting? You get to go back to the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the aughts, the, the, the 10s, and now the 20s. What's the best decade for collecting from David Porter's perspective? I'll go the right now. The reason it is so good is because if you choose to collect right now, not only if you're collecting, but we've seen people open businesses that's based on opening and distributing trading cards. There's lots of people that do it, whether they're case breakers whether they're just eBay people or various numbers of ways that they do it, they have they have Beckett Marketplace spots, all those different areas to sell their stuff. It's doable now. It didn't used to be doable because of the way cards were built. I think as far as a hobbyist, you do have lots of spots for the stuff that you either get too much of. I think it's easier to get uh, full value for your other stuff now. I just like right now for that reason. As my favorite decade to work on sets from those is the 60s. Yeah. Uh, I'm amazed because there's so many cards in the 60s that you think are commons until you go try to find them and they're anything but. You know? Another way to think of the decade thing is even adjusting for inflation, the dollars per hour that you get from enjoying the hobby and profiting from the hobby is jumped up amazingly oh. this year. And hence this the last two or three years, it's been exponential. Because we didn't value our time that much in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s that much. But there wasn't a lot of return. We were younger too. Okay, your question. Of all the things that you did with Beckett and all the great stuff you brought to the hobby, what are you most proud of? The easy answer is my team. Well, <laughs> that, I I was talking, yeah. Because I realized that when I was by myself and doing it, I did a lot of price guides on my own. That was a lot of satisfaction. But the big 
success and increase came when I brought on teammates that were super talented, hardworking, like you said, the passion, the knowledge. I always had great contributors too, but we put everybody under one roof. And I realize now that many of the companies in the COVID world, they're offshored, they're not under the same roof, but we had a great team, a little bit of a family atmosphere of a, a team, esprit de corps, that we were in this together. And we were going to pitch in and we didn't have a lot of people saying, hey, that's not my job. They'd said, I could do that. And they'd jump in, they'd learn something. They were dealing with cards. You didn't have to twist somebody's arm to say, hey, we need somebody to go to the show this weekend in Chicago. <laughs> There'd be volunteers. There'd be guys pushing the other guys out of the way. I made it like a fraternity thing without hazing to any great degree. Right. Yeah, there was no. But you were hazed when you came on. I did not get hazed a lot. I don't remember being hazed a lot. No. Rich, maybe a little bit, but that was it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's been the fun. I'm working on stuff that I love doing, using my wiring, and then I get to do it with people I really enjoy working with. It was a great blessing. Now, doing the podcast, I get a little bit of that without having to make payroll. I get to talk to my friends on a more equal basis and, and talk about the good old days. And the good old days maybe aren't as good as the good new days that we're having right now. Right. And thanks to creative teams at each of the card companies that are cranking out interesting products. I'm more of a vintage guy, but the, the hobby needs to be hot with what's now. And Panini, you guys are doing a great job on that and keeping it fresh, interesting, dynamic and expensive. So. <laughs> expensive. Well, thanks for that. I was going to say the answer to my question for you was credibility because that's what you brought it to where everyone had one place to go where they knew what they were looking at was correct. That's sometimes a really hard thing to find when you're new to something and looking for it, but that's a huge feather that gets overlooked. I, I, that was a goal, David, but it's still, it was team effort even in that. Or like, it was. A lot of times I had to, I tried to set a tone, but I wasn't forcing anybody to follow me. You know, no. They, we mainly hired for character and passion, as you've right. said. We wanted sharp people, but they had to have integrity, and we chose wisely and just had a great time. It was a Hall of Fame team. Great ride. Great ride. ride. It was, yes. Thanks, David Porter. Thanks, uh, listeners. We'll be back tomorrow. Dr. Beckett, thank you. The man-